Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. This is Critical Q&A number 128. And uh, I have been answering these uh, questions for quite a while now, and I've still got more and more questions to answer, of course. But I wanted to remind new subscribers and new folks to my channel here that there is a tremendous uh, library now, really, of information here available on this channel, and I encourage you to check it out. The full list of questions that have been asked of me on this show are available on my blog the, at mncriticalthinking.com. Uh, on a page called uh, Critical Q&A Questions. It's very hard to find. And, um, and you can search through that and check out uh, anything you might be interested in or are looking for. Uh, so you can see answers that I've given over time. And, uh, and I've tried not to repeat answers that I've um, given as much as I can, but sometimes the answers change or have changed a little bit over the time that I've been doing this. So I have revisited subjects a number of times and I'm not averse to any question you guys want to ask me. I'm just letting you know that between the, the 128 episodes of Critical Q&A and the tremendous body of video work I've put together on this channel, you'll find a lot of answers already here. And I encourage you to go through and binge watch my channel because all of it is there for you guys to be educated and find out more about Scientology, destructive cults in general, recovery and help for people who were involved in these groups, and um, how to avoid getting involved in them in the first place. Because if you think Scientology is the only one out there that does the things that Scientology does, you are sorely mistaken. You will find destructive cult behavior all over our society and all over the world. And, uh, and the lessons I've been trying to get across on my channel are about Scientology uh, do apply to that topic, but also apply very much to many other subjects and areas of interest. So, that being said, let's go ahead this week and get on with the questions we have for today. Linda Hunt. My friend and I have been watching Leah Remini's show on A&E. My friend happens to have a niece attending the Delphi School in Oregon. My friend got concerned after watching the show and finding out that kids have to sign a billion-year contract. She was sure that it didn't apply to her niece. She called the school and has found out that her niece has already signed. What we don't understand is that her niece has been going to Delphi and has been on antipsychotic drugs for many years. We started doing research and it looks like you have to qualify to sign the contract. The strongest of these qualifications is that you have not taken any pharmaceutical drugs. My friend's niece dropped a bombshell by telling my friend that she had stopped taking all of her drugs six months ago. We are wondering if it had something to do with signing the contract. We are kind of worried because she is talking about becoming emancipated and joining the Sea Org. She is 15. Do you think she is eligible to sign the contract? Thanks for any info you can send our way. Okay, so a lot to uh, take apart here because there's a lot to tell you. 
Um, people who come in, and I think I addressed this recently, people who come into Scientology don't have to sign a billion-year contract. Not every single person who comes in does that. It is only people who want to join the C organization who have to sign a symbolic billion-year contract of commitment to uh, the goals and aims of Scientology and to the Sea Org. And the Sea Org is the elite paramilitary core group of Scientology. It is the, the full-time, flat-out, most dedicated, uh, most fanatical members of the Church of Scientology. And they recruit second-gen, third-gen, fourth-gen members of Scientology for the Sea Org as their primary recruitment pool. And it's been that way for a number of years because the number of people coming into Scientology has been gradually decreasing, right, going uh, as the toxic nature of Scientology has become more widely known and broad, broadly you know, known and widespread out in the real world. So fewer and fewer people coming in, that means the Sea Org recruiters who are demanded to get new recruits every single week, it is unacceptable for a Sea Org recruiter to come in with goose eggs or you know, big zeros uh, on their recruitment statistics every week. So they desperately look for anybody who they might find uh, qualified or can be made qualified to join the Sea Org, and they go after them with a vengeance. And this very much includes uh, the children who attend the Scientology schools, the Delphi schools in Oregon or Los Angeles, or the uh, Clearwater Academy or whatever it's called now, and any other private Scientology school is absolutely um, game for the Sea Org recruiters to come around. The Delphi School in Oregon for has had a a uh, contentious relationship with the Church of Scientology because while they are using Scientology trademarks and paying the church for the right to do that, they uh, have not always had a welcoming open arms policy about Sea Org recruiters. And when I was doing Sea Org recruitment, for example, around 2009 or 10 or whenever it was, um, around that time period, I was not allowed to go recruit and at Delphi, Oregon. I went up there twice and we had some prospects that we thought were going to be there, but, uh, and Delphi, Oregon is, is predominantly a, a boarding school, so all the students are staying there, but, um, but we weren't allowed to go in there and recruit them. The school wouldn't let us. Uh, so, you know, not without specific written okay from the parents and a bunch of other things, and usually we went the other way around. We would go in, recruit the kid, and then use the kid to help pressure the parents to allow them to join which it sounds like has been the case with, your, with this person you're talking about in this question. Now, as far as qualifications go, there are not a lot of qualifications for the Sea Org, and you're, at, and you're a little off on the pharmaceutical drugs thing. The qualifications include um, for the Sea Org include being a Scientologist, of course. You're not going to just sign up somebody who doesn't know anything about Scientology. And the most adamant, uh, you know, in iron steel letters, you know, blazoned in fire across the sky is no LSD. You cannot ever have dropped acid or taken LSD or any of its derivatives. That's, that's the line from Hubbard's um, issue on that. And he was very, very specific. And it is probably one of the only things that has been held mostly, well, even, you know, no, even this policy has been, been compromised. But Hubbard was very, very clear that um, in the reference on LSD cases that no one under any circumstances can be recruited. And anybody who tries 
to recruit somebody who's taken LSD is immediately sent to the RPF, right? Of course, Sea Org members, right? Because only Sea Org members are doing the RPF. So, so as so Sea Org recruiters are absolutely like hands off on anybody who has ever taken LSD. However, if they've taken other medications, other pharmaceutical medications, or even psychiatric medications, they can still petition. They can write a formal, uh, you know, petition or document asking for, in this particular case, special extenuating circumstances or whatever, and get okay or permission to recruit that person. A handful of times I have seen LSD cases authorized and approved to join the Sea Org, even though Hubbard himself actually said, no way. So that just kind of proves to you that, you know, sometimes it doesn't really matter what Hubbard said in his policies. If somebody's desperate enough for a new recruit before Thursday at two, and they can convince, you know, their senior and their senior senior and their senior senior, because a petition has to go up quite high to get approved. It goes to a person called senior, senior has int, the senior um, HCO area secretary, senior HCO person international. And this is the person who's overall in charge of recruitment across the planet and overall in charge of personnel qualifications. So there were exceptions made, like I said, a handful of times for LSD cases, but, um, but you're really not supposed to, and you're really treading a thin line when you even go there, right? You can get in a lot of trouble in the Sea Org for, for even thinking about you know, doing that. Um, so there are other personnel requirements in order to join staff at a Scientology or Sea Org org. For example, you can't be uh, visibly, obviously insane. You can't be talking in non sequiturs or, or, you know, talking like you're a crazy person. Um, there are certain, um, for staff or Sea Org, I think there are or have been certain IQ test requirements and uh, that sort of thing, but not a lot. There's not a whole lot of testing that gets that, you know, that it's not like, oh, your IQ is one, you know, 115 and it has to be 120 and therefore we're not going to sign you up. You know, they'll, they'll work, work you over on the test until you, they push that score up is what they'll do. Uh, they don't send you packing. And, um, and then as far as the, what, what I'm, what I'm actually most um, surprised or interested or, or, you know, want to alert you to in terms of that emancipation thing is um, that is, a, that's a big warning sign. I hope the parents are alerted to what's going on uh, fully with, you know, with, I hope they're fully informing themselves of what all of this is all about. And um, because if she, you know, gets emancipated, I mean, usually what happens is somebody will get parental okay if they're 15, you know, to, to go into the Sea Org. And then they'll get a guardian assigned to them, some kind of legal guardian there at the Sea Org base where they're going to. Uh, I was a legal guardian for somebody for a little while who had joined the Sea Org as a minor uh, when I was in, right? So that's usually how it goes. This whole emancipation thing is a, is a little bit new and very difficult because you have to go file legal documents and this kind of thing. So, um, so I'm surprised that that is what's happening, which means there must be, if, if, the, if the girl who's being recruited feels that that's necessary, then there must be some kind of contention between her and her parents. Uh, and, you know, anyway, this girl should definitely be sat down and educated on Scientology and the Sea Organization and what really goes on, because what really goes on is not what she's being told she's going to go do, 
right? Again, uh, from my year as a uh, Sea Org recruiter, my years in the Sea Org, uh, I, you know, there's, there's, it just, that's not how it works, right? They tell you, they promise you the sun, moon, and stars, and then they, you know, deliver a, uh, <laughs> you know, broken down golf cart. I mean, you don't get, you know, anything that you were promised when you actually arrive and, 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 and show up and start. Anyway, those are the, the, the basic qualifications. The LSD is the big thing. And I just wanted to be clear about that billion-year contract that it's only if you're going in the Sea Org that that is a thing. And it's not a legal document. There is no, no chance of anybody suing her or anybody else over breaking that billion-year contract or anything, anything like that because the, the billion-year contract is not legally binding in any way. And the staff contracts that you sign, which are legal, actual legal documents, you can break those without any legal repercussions of any kind. The church is never going to take you to task or sue you or try to take you to court for violating your staff contract. That just doesn't happen, right? And including getting a freeloader's debt and all of that, right? That which I've talked about extensively in other videos, so I won't go over that again here. So. Hope that answers all of those points. Holly Edmiston. Watching you grow emotionally and deal with hard truths is really humbling and inspiring. Hard enough to do in general, but to do so publicly is really admirable. I am all for ending Scientology, but my fear is that DM will get away with plenty of money and parishioners will be left bereft and without psychological care. Do you think it would be better to have a quick end or would a more gradual phasing out be better overall for the people still involved? Well, thank you very much, Holly. I really appreciate your kind words about my uh, recent video and, and the work I've been doing here, and so thank you. Um, as far as your question, that is a really interesting question. I've really given this a little bit of thought because I find that, um, you know, hmm, what about that? Should we, should we just rip the Band-Aid off if DM takes off or something, or should it be a more, you know, acclimating process for those who are in to get back into the real world. Well, I, I, I think personally that the mandate should just get ripped off. I think that if, uh, if David Miscavige takes off or otherwise, you know, disappears, or even if he doesn't, you know, if something else were to happen that could cause the, the end of Scientology, I think it should just be done. Uh, you know, kind of maybe analogous to, I don't know, like the Berlin Wall coming down. I mean, it didn't just you know, sort of come down gradually. I mean, I know there were historical events that occurred prior to it that paved the way for that to happen in the same way that Going Clear, Anonymous, all of us critics, Leah's show, like all this stuff is paving the way for something, you know, for this thing to eventually end. And I think when it does end, it needs to just end, just done, right? And then those people, all the people who are in the world of Scientology, can can reacclimate to the real world in whatever, in whatever way that is, you know, that works for them. Uh, they can find their way, and they can they can make it happen. There are um, very few people in Scientology who are who I would say are in in real immediate need of any kind of you know emergency services or or. Uh, or psychological or, you know, therapeutic help or something like on a fairly fast basis. I would say people at the international base, especially those who have been subjugated to the whole, people who have um, maybe stuck, you know, for years and years in the RPF, right? But Scientologists, just like anybody else, they're pretty resilient people. And the experiences that occur in Scientology are not all 
you know, locked in a closet, you know, handcuffed and, and tied up and, and, and sleep deprived and, and food deprived. I mean, that's not, the, that's not the general way that people in the Sea Org or in Scientology live their life. They, they have good days, they have bad days, they go to work, they do their thing, they laugh, they joke, they cry, they fall in love, they fall out of love. They, I mean, all the things that happen in life happen in the world of Scientology. So, um, so it's not like every single person who's ever been involved in Scientology is in desperate need of psychological help or is utterly ruined emotionally and, you know, and, and mentally. It's not, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum. And, uh, and, I, and I've tried to, you know, be clear about the fact that it is a spectrum with some people much worse off than others. It all depends on what kind of experiences they've had, how close to David Miscavige and his inner circle they've come, how um, or whether you know other forms of abusive behavior have occurred with them, like the Truth Rundown or the RPF, or you know extended ethics and justice actions carried out on them, or were they just a run-of-the-mill you know regular public Scientologist who came in, did some classes, did some auditing? Yeah, this was a big waste of time, and and you know and that's done. They're they're out and they're done, and they move on with their life. So it's, um, it's really case by case, okay, is I think what I'm trying to get across here. So I think from my own experience and from what I've observed and learned since I've left Scientology that um, I think it just being done, done, right, is the best way to go with that. And I hope that satisfies your, your question. Paul. Obviously, Scientology searches for those who challenge it and expose it and do what they can to try to censor people who oppose it. Do all of those people who are at the Office of Special Affairs or whoever else deals with trying to counteract slash shut down opposition actually know all the details of the OT levels, Xenu, and everything else that is not generally known amongst most Scientologists? If they're going to try to debunk slash sue slash criticize or gag opposition, then surely they must be aware of the content of the higher levels and equally the content written or leaked by opposition. Do these people receive this material for free, presumably they are Sea Org, at an accelerated rate just so they can deal with identifying slash attempting to censor it, as presumably there is no point sending an army of people to attack opposition if they have no clue what the opposition are saying and why? It would seem to be a bit like invading the UK, but having no clue what the capital is, what ports we have, and the basic nature of what armed forces slash defenses we have. Okay, in a word, uh, yes. The answer to your question is yes. The people who work in the Office of Special Affairs or otherwise for the Church of Scientology who are exposed to the OT materials uh, through seeing uh, work that I've done or that Leah's done or anybody else, they are OT. And if they're not OT and there's OT material being talked about or exposed in the, the critical information, whether it be a video, a book, a lecture, a, a, a talk, whatever, TV show, uh, no non-science, no no non-OTs are going to be allowed to watch or look at that information. They keep it, they keep it locked down, and they are very very strict about this in the world of Scientology. So, the Office of Special Affairs will will find OTs already who are in Scientology and transfer them into the Office of Special Affairs if they are otherwise qualified for OSA and they want to work there, or they will push people on up the line to OT, but. Uh, and remember that when you're in the Sea Org or when you're a staff member, your services are free. Uh, so you don't have to pay for the OT levels when you're a Sea Org member, right? Uh, so they'll just push you on up them. And 
Uh, and there are people I saw over the years in, in Scientology and in the Sea Org who, um, you know, who worked in the Office of Special Affairs who were not OT. And when something came up that had OT material in it or confidential material in it, they had to defer to an OT to deal with it because they couldn't. Now, I'm pretty sure that the net effect of this over the years has been to lose some people from OSA and probably has been to uh, cause some of those non-OTs in, in the Office of Special Affairs to be exposed accidentally to some of the OT material. Um, and I think that what tends to happen in, in, in cases like that, at least what I was told when I was in, and I had questions come up about stuff that, you know, ooh, was this confidential? I don't know. What did I look at? The line within the world of Scientology is that the OT material that's talked about is squirreled, it's altered, it's not the same as the actual OT materials. And that, you know, like, for example, if, uh, if Leah or Mike or me or other critics were to talk about this material, which we've done, uh, we're talking about altered, squirreled, you know, not, real, not the real stuff. Because, um, because the real stuff to them is supposed to make sense. It's supposed to all make, be logically consistent, totally workable, and the secrets of the universe. And so if we're just blabbing about it all over the place and to no consequence and, and no harm or anything like that, then clearly we can't be talking about the good stuff, the real stuff, the honest stuff, because Hubbard says that the good, real, honest stuff is potentially damaging to you if you're not ready for it, right? Uh, amongst other things. So there's various mental machinations that have to go on in the heads of Scientologists to make it make sense that people outside the church know about this stuff. But also remember the self-policing that goes on within the world of Scientology. So people who are not yet to the OT levels take great, great care to not be exposed to Scientology confidential information out in the real world. And they don't have a lot of internet access anyway. I mean, the number of people in OSA who are able to freely look at the internet is very, very, very tiny, right? It's a very small number of people. Um, so the people, so I imagine, and maybe we'd have to ask, you know, Mike Rinder, but I imagine that if, uh, you know, if OT material was showing up in a court case or, you know, somehow otherwise being shown and it was not OTs who were dealing with that, either they'd be gotten out of the room or they would just have to grit their teeth and deal with it and then get some auditing sessions and, you know, deal with that. Because like, for example, Mike Rinder didn't get all the way up to OT8. So I'm not really sure how he dealt with exposure to OT materials when he was in charge of OSA. I'll have to ask him about that next time I, next time I talk to him. So that's what I can tell you about that from my own experience. But I think uh, uh, my experience is, is limited because I never worked in the Office of Special Affairs. So while that's the best answer I can give you, feel free to you know, keep looking around or asking that question of others because there might be some, some different information available otherwise. Sam Fremantle. After the last few months of research I've been doing, I found out that various celebrities whose work I respected are involved with high-demand groups. For example, David Lynch and recently Elizabeth Moss. I find that it's hard to enjoy David Lynch's work now, as I once did, because of his involvement in TM. 
The same for the recent Handmaid's Tale, which I thoroughly enjoyed but now think I don't want to support by watching. It wasn't hard to not watch The Mummy, of course, but other things that have real artistic merit now seem tainted. How do you deal with this issue? Would you advocate boycotting of the work? Hey, thanks for this, thanks for this question, Sam. Um, I've, I, I might have mentioned something about this before, but I think that uh, boycotting is a perfectly valid form of civil protest, right? If you can get a large group of people to do it. I mean, individually boycotting doesn't really mean a whole lot. I'm, you know, I, I used to boycott Walmart because I disagreed with Walmart's employment practices, but I don't think I exactly brought the uh, Walton family to their knees, you know, with me, Chris Shelton, boycotting Walmart, right? So it really does take a lot of people doing it for it really to mean much of anything, uh, at, you know, at a social level. But if you personally feel offended or, or feel uh, uncomfortable or, you know, like out of sorts watching Tom Cruise or John Travolta or any of the Scientology celebrities, um, because they're Scientologists, right? If you have a hard time watching Orange is the New Black because Laura Preppen is, you know, uh, actually Scientologist who is against homosexuality, even though she will say otherwise, and uh, then fine. You know, I really don't have anything to, to say about that. I personally deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis. In other words, I can't really, I have a very hard time watching Tom Cruise. Uh, because after reading Going Clear, seeing the, the documentary, reading the book, finding out more about what he was really like, uh, and how he, you know, put up with and actually encouraged uh, slave labor for, him, for his own personal benefit, I just cannot respect that man in any way. And I have no doubt that the stories that were told about Tom Cruise in regards to that in the documentaries are true. I know the people who, you know, uh, did that work, were involved in that. And, um, I mean, I don't know them intimately, but I know who they are and I trust them and I know, you know, that they're good people and that they don't have a reason to be telling tales about Tom Cruise, right? There's just no reason to do that. Uh, they gain nothing from, from doing that. Uh, and, I, and I know from my own time in the church how much the church bends over to cater to the celebrities and how unusual the church can go in doing so. And so I have no reason to doubt uh, you know, that those stories about Tom Cruise are true. I, I don't have the same uh, feelings about John Travolta particularly. I mean, I know, I know John Travolta is a nice guy. I've met him. And, uh, and I know that he doesn't, you know, take advantage of people the same way Tom Cruise has. John Travolta is also not inherently, a, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't come across or relate to others from a narcissistic point of view, right? He's, he, at least from my interactions with him, which were brief, but from everything I've seen and read and talked with others who have interacted with him, it's, you know, John Travolta is always about helping other people. It's always about trying to bring benefit to others, even if he's totally wrong-headed in how he's doing it. You know, with giving assists and stuff. I mean, he was never shy, never bashful about being a Scientologist. And he always offered his assistance to those who he thought could use some, could get some benefit from what he had to offer. That's honest, you know, that's an honest intention on his part. John Travolta isn't trying to scam people. So I respect him, and I don't have a problem seeing him in his work. 
I certainly have a problem with a lot of the work that he's done in terms of the quality of it. And I've done movie reviews and whatnot in the past about John Travolta movies, and, and a lot of the movies he's made are, are shit, you know. But, uh, but the ones that he made that were really good, I, you know, I'll, I'll watch those and, and, uh, and talk favorably about them. Um, I do have, uh, so, so again, it's a, you know, I could run down the whole list of celebrities and tell you how I personally feel about them, but I think you get the idea that it's a, that it's a case by case thing for me. And I have to, um, uh, agree with, you know, anyone who, you know, who says, well, I'm, I'm fine. I can separate it out. I go, great. You can separate it out because what you're seeing when you're watching entertainment is you're watching a person, you're watching people do, do their job. And if they do their job right, you're not watching them personally. You're watching them play a character of somebody else, a caricature of someone else, right? And if they do their job really well, you will lose yourself in watching that persona they're playing and not watching them, right? So, um, so again, I can't differentiate those things. I can't suspend my disbelief when I'm watching Tom Cruise. But most of the time, for most of the other Scientology celebrities, I don't have a problem. And that's, that's my answer. An outcast. You and many other ex-Scientologists refer to they or to Scientology when referring to the promoters of all the craziness inflicted to org or lower level Scientologists. Therefore, it sounds like everyone is a victim of someone above but how can that be possible when we talk about very high-ranking people? For example, Mike Rinder. He seems like such a genuine and reasonable person, but he was the number two of the organization. He had been, for decades, the closest person to Miscavige. How is it possible that Rinder opened his eyes on Scientology after so many years spent on the top of the top? Wasn't he the master of puppets? Wasn't he Scientology more than anyone else but one? Don't you believe that the leaders of a money-making scam organization ruining people's lives cannot be nothing but very mean and dishonest people? Okay, so first off, you mentioned Mike Rinder, but I think who you were actually talking about was Marty Rathbun, who was the number two in the organization under David Miscavige. And I mean number two in all ways. His rank and rating and position in Scientology in the hierarchy was right under David Miscavige. So uh, that's who you're referring to when you're talking about all that. Mike Rinder was not that. He was actually, you know, one or two echelons down from there. He was, uh, Mike Rinder was never number two in Scientology. He was, uh, for a time, the head of the Office of Special Affairs. He was the commanding officer of that group, which mainly put him in charge of or overseeing legal cases and legal activities of the church. And there are a lot of legal activities involved with Scientology, from corporate and tax law and handlings, to the, you know, from that stuff, which is perfectly legit work, uh, to dealing with legal cases, whether the church was being sued or was suing others, to the private investigators and the stalking and the harassment and the, and the dirty stuff, right, which is where we tend to give a lot of focus and attention to, even though that's not by a long shot all that goes on in the world of Scientology. So, um, so, what you need to understand with a question like this is it's a, it's a very prejudicial question because you're not really giving a, a, a fair shake to each individual person at the upper levels of Scientology. The, the way people get to the top of Scientology is not through, you know, proving to, I don't know, it's not, it's not by proving 
you know, that they're ruthless, horrible assholes. That's not really how it works, right? You move up slowly through the ranks, and when you get to the international base, you're, you think you're going to, you know, this, this paradise, beautiful, wonderful, ideal Scientology organization, and then you get there, and then you find out, since nothing in the world, within the world of Scientology, the stuff that goes on at the international base does not filter down to the rest of Scientology. As far as all of Scientology is concerned, the international base, this, this place in San Jacinto, California, is heaven. It's the ideal base. It's the ideal place to live. It's the ideal place to work. It's the embodiment of everything good and wonderful about Scientology. That is the only permissible, acceptable line from anybody from that place once they leave it and go talk to other people about it. If they say anything but that, they are in so much trouble, they could be declared just like that. So you don't have people coming out of the international base telling other people how bad it is there, okay? Uh, so, and the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because I'm trying to stress the point of information control and compartmentalization of information. This is a very important concept. Uh, there are levels to this, okay? You, right now, know more about what goes on in the world of Scientology just by watching my channel, just by watching Leah, just by reading Going Clear. You know more than any Scientologist anywhere at any level short of David Miscavige. Because even at the very, very top, even within David Miscavige's inner circle, there is information control and compartmentalization. David Miscavige does not just hand over the reins of power or information to anyone else. So he's always got scheme going on within scheme and things, operations going on that nobody knows about, even people who should know about it. Because as gone over many times, David Miscavige is the guy who has kicked everybody off of their jobs, stuck them in the hole or stuck them in you know, this, this constant, you know, they are declared suppressive people and they're never good enough and they're never uh, strong enough and gosh darn it, David Miscavige hates them. So they are never, you know, really in a strong position of power underneath him. That's how far it's devolved. It used, back in the 80s, people had jobs. There was Guillaume Sev, David, you know, uh, Ray Midoff, uh, Mike Rinder, Marty Rathbun, all these guys, right, who had who had a post, they, they, they were doing their job, and gradually through the 90s and through the 2000s, David Miscavige has ripped all of that to shreds. So he's the only one really calling any of the important shots, really the only one who's getting any benefit from all of the money and power that he's accumulated at the top of the, of the heap, right? And everybody below him is dirt. So... Mike Rinder, most of Mike Rinder's time, for example, since we since you singled him out in your question, most of his time in the Sea Org and in uh, especially under David Miscavige was pretty hellacious. It was not a good time. It was not a lot of fun. And it only got worse as the years went on. Okay, as more and more power and responsibility was stripped away from him, as he was put into the hole in the early 2000s and treated like utter, you know, like, like just total dog crap. And finally, you know, personally reached a point where his personal belief, and this is what happens to everybody, 
is, is his personal belief in the subject and in L. Ron Hubbard and in the group and the, what the good of the group, what the good uh, that they were doing, it became untenable. He couldn't, that belief was, was, was squashed so hard over so long a period of time by the atrocities and the human rights violations that he just couldn't deal with it anymore. He just went, okay, I, I, it, it, I, I can't, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. All of us who left reached that breaking point through some means, usually if, you know, when it got fairly personal for us. And it was undeniable that, you know, that our, that our uh, push to make Scientology happen uh, was, you know, we couldn't, couldn't stand up against our push to, you know, to stay sane. So anyway, um, I, I hope I'm kind of painting a, 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 an accurate and, and understandable picture here that, um, that no one has it good at the top of Scientology and that, that also, I, I didn't, maybe I didn't say this uh, strongly enough, the reason all those people put up with all those abuses and are, and are in those positions, whether it's at the very top or the very bottom of the hierarchy, is because they strongly believe that Scientology is the greatest good for everyone in this planet and in this universe. And, and they are martyring themselves when they face adversity and face all the atrocities and, and, and bad things that happen to them. They're doing so because they um, have this you know, push to make the world a better place and try to do their part and feel that they are doing all of that because they're trying to be responsible for themselves and for everyone else. It's misguided. It is horribly, you know, awful that anybody would get into a mindset like that where they would feel that they need to martyr themselves that way. But that's, that's how it is. That's, that's how it really is. And David Miscavige takes advantage of that, just like L. Ron Hubbard did, for personal financial gain and power, right? Because they're both megalomaniacs. Uh, the rest of the people in Scientology under them are not megalomaniacs. They're not power-hungry, narcissistic, you know, jerks, right? I, I should say there are a handful of those, <laughs> but for the most part, that's not what's going on up there, right? And they're not, they're not doing what they're doing because they know that Scientology is a money-making scam. That's not why Mike Rinder did what he did for the number of years that he did. So... You know, that's, I, I hope that's all clear enough. And, uh, and if not, feel free to ask me more about this. There you go. And it is time for Flash Answers. Patty N. I am concerned about the people who leave the church and still believe that Thetans have infested us and we need to be saved from their alien presence. What will they do to achieve this? Will they become loose cannons? Uh, no, I don't think so. So far, none of them have really become loose cannons, and I don't really see that, that they're going to, because the only way that any of them believe that you can be saved by the you know, body thetans or the aliens that are infesting you is for you to audit them out, right? Which means you have to sit in a room with an e-meter and you have to get rid of them one by one. So it's not like you know people who are still independent Scientologists and believe in this stuff are going to somehow uh, go crazy and force you to do something that you, you know, don't want to do. It doesn't really work that way. Karen Russell. Did LRH ever write about divine feminism? 
No, Karen, he did not. Uh, that would have been, the, the whole concept of divine feminism would have been something that I think Hubbard would have laughed long and hard about. He was not, uh, he, didn't, he didn't cotton to that kind of thing. But uh, no, he never did talk about divine feminism. Nibiros 21. I don't know if you have been asked this before, knowing all the things the Church of Scientology does to its harshest and loudest critics, why are you not constantly looking over your shoulder? Well, who says I'm not? Casa Real. What happened to DM and Scientology's new TV channel? See, look at the camera, Seven. Oh. <laughs> oh. This is Seven. He's, he doesn't like it up here, so he's going to go away. But uh, I just thought I'd show everybody uh, this is Seven. <laughs> he's, he's always hiding, hiding off to the side while I'm making these videos. As far as the uh, TV channel goes, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, they haven't really put out anything of consequence. The TV channel has not appeared or manifested in any way other than a schedule we saw at one point and some announcements that it was supposed to happen over the summer, which it clearly didn't do. And I can only imagine that, um, you know, heads are rolling and TV shows are being written and scripted and et cetera, et cetera. And David Miscavige is probably reject, reject, reject. Why are you people all so incompetent? Why don't you get your head on straight? What's the matter with you people? I could do a better job than this. And then proceeds to show everybody how he can't. And the whole thing just sort of proceeds along as though it's supposed to make sense when none of it really does. Because that's how Scientology runs in so many ways. So that's, uh, that's my answer. <laughs> Okay, everybody, that's the end of this show for this week. Thanks for your questions. Go ahead and leave more. Uh, any comments, feedback, good, bad, or sideways, leave it in the comment section below. I will see it. I will get to your questions. And, uh, and I will thank you again for coming around. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.